welcome to Careers in Discovery, where you'll meet scientists who've forged outstanding careers in biotech and hear about what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by Singular, building brilliant biotechs. Roland Burley is the Vice President of Drug Discovery at Cerevance, where he and his team are using a unique discovery platform to develop new treatments for brain diseases. Roland joined us to discuss his varied career to date, from landing in LA with just a backpack to working for some of the industry's biggest names. I am delighted to be joined this week by Roland Burley of Cerevance. Roland, welcome to Careers in Discovery. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom, for inviting me. Ah, fantastic to see you. Um, So, Roland, let's start with Sarah Vance. I'm really interested in the work that you are doing in neuroscience and with your NetSeq platform. Tell us a little bit about everything that's going on over there and what you're up to. (laughs) Okay, yeah, there is a lot going on, yeah. So, um, Sarah Vance is quite a a small biotech, about six six years old or so, based in Cambridge in the UK. there are people in the US as well, mainly clinical and uh, in some senior management, but uh, the operation is, the clinical operation certainly is all based here in the UK. Yes. Um, yes. The, the company is really, uh, the, the main, the unique part about the company is a target identification platform, which we call NetSeq. And uh, what's unique about it is we're, uh, so I should say that we're we're only interested in neurological and neurodegenerative diseases, mm-hmm. all diseases of the brain, yeah, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and and other other grievous diseases. And um, what we're doing is we're not building hypotheses based on animal data. We're really going directly uh, uh, into the human brain. We're trying to understand the human brain and how the disease starts there. And to do that, we have uh, thousands of brain samples and basically brain anatomists, they dissect the, the areas in, in those human brains, post-mortem brains, the areas where the disease starts. Mm. We then take those tissues, we sort those cells into many different cell types, 60 different cell types, and we do deep transcriptomics on all those sorted cells. So because they're pooled cells, we can go very deep. We could be look at right. 12,000 genes and transcripts. Uh, so we, we see a very comprehensive picture of how the disease starts, in which mm-hmm. cell type it starts, in which region it starts, how it evolves during the disease, because not everybody dies at the very end of Alzheimer's, they no, of course. the reasons yeah. as well. So we, we, we can see the progression as well. And we look at age-matched controls as well, because in the aging human brain, this is, the gene expression is changing as well. And uh, we compare that, how, um, how it dis- this relates to, to the disease. Mm. So you can imagine with a lot of data about different cell types, many genes in different diseases, different ages and stages, you have an enormous data set. Yes. And that's when the selection starts, you know, what are we working on? So we then really, what we're interested in are ideally genes and or 
proteins that derive from these genes, which are selectively expressed in only one cell type in the brain, because that will be better for uh, probably for a side effect profile, but also yeah, for us to understand the, the, the pathway and the, the biology in that particular cell type. Um, it should be dysregulated in the disease. So then you know that you have to up or down regulate it mm -hmm. um, uh, as, as, a, as a potential therapy. And, um, and, and, and clearly, you know, ideally relatively little peripheral expression as well, yes. because you don't want to have a lot of a peripheral burden and impact upon modulation. Um, and then really, so that's, that's one part. So we select these targets, they do exist. They mm. are, they are definitely, a lot of them are not very well investigated. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of new ground to, to, to cover and, and new genes to, to, to look at of course we one big aspect is also drugability we obviously can only work on of course. genes that, that where the proteins are druggable and um, internally we only work on small molecules although this platform is agnostic of of the modalities mm -hmm. so in principle one could access uh, or uh, try to interfere with those targets as well with uh, with other modalities but that's not what we're doing in-house yeah interesting and so it's interesting the focus on where these diseases start from, because I suppose like any type of degenerative disease, it's different from other conditions in that it's not that you're healthy one day and you're sick the next, right? There's a progression of these things. And it, I, I suppose it's hard to identify sometimes when and where they start. And that, that's what you're focusing on from the sounds of it. Yeah. And it's often not just one isolated gene, but yeah. it's a whole pathway, which is kind of dysregulated as the disease progresses. So you, you really want to form a, a picture and a hypothesis and not just say, I like this gene, you know, so it, it has to make sense, but it only makes sense if you actually look at the whole data set. It doesn't really make sense if you just look at one cell type and one yeah. gene or something. So that's that's the power of the platform, I would say. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, no, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, um, there's very little treatment for these diseases at the moment, isn't there? And it, it, of course, there's complexity around that. But um, if we can, under, you know, there, there's the direct result, I suppose, of the work that you're doing that hopefully we can develop some therapies for them, but also gaining that understanding of them hopefully provides a, a foundation for, for other ways to look at these problems as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's a very gratifying task because mm. uh, you know you're, uh, it's a huge problem in society and um, uh, like diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's almost everybody knows somebody who has that and yes and um, to be able to work on this is really a privilege actually no absolutely and and we'll talk a little bit about how you ended up getting involved in this uh, as we go along but but tell us about you know today your role is as vice president of drug discovery Tell us a bit, yeah. Roland, about your days. Where do you spend your time? What what is it that you're doing in your in your position now? Yeah, so so I really get involved when when we select a target, when we mm -hmm. say, okay, this is druggable, then it's a good hypothesis, but maybe underexplored. But we need we need um, some molecules that we can test the hypothesis and maybe even advance and go towards the clinic. Yes. So. So that's uh, where, where my team is very involved or becomes very involved. And uh, then you need, uh, often there is nothing out there. So we have um, 
case studies that where we basically started with 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 a high throughput screen mm -hmm. um, to find modulators, uh, inhibitors, activators, um, and then uh, we take those initial hits. We typically have then we have to improve the potency, the the, the selectivity, the the pharmacokinetic properties so that it's well behaved in vivo. It's orally bioavailable, brain permeable, not too many side effects, drug drug interactions, and so on. And when all these things line up, then yeah. you can start to really profile um, uh, in, in advanced disease models, in toxicology safety studies, uh, select a candidate for further development and go into the clinic. And um, we've done that with two molecules that, mm -hmm. that are now in, in, in late stage uh, 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 preclinical development. And uh, and that's very exciting, of course. Yes, so yeah. we, have, we have projects at all stages. We have... Uh, very early targets. We have sort of, we call it hit to lead, um, lead optimization, but then also the preclinical development. And we do have two compounds in the clinic as well, um, which is a, a whole other story, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's just to visualize how much is, is going on at Cerevan. So we're building a whole clinical team as well to progress those molecules. Yeah, interesting. And, and all based around this, this same platform initially. Yeah, and perhaps what's important to share is maybe it's it's obvious, but this is a very multidisciplinary mm -hmm. uh, uh, piece of work. So we have, you know, we have chemists, we have people who design a lot, we have people who do set up assays, in vitro assays, we have people then on the on the neuroside, people who, who who validate those targets in, in very neurobespoke assays that could be electrophysiology and other assays. Um, we have uh, DMPK um, and we do a lot external as well. Yes. I mean, we, we can't do everything internal. So for example, synthesis and everything that's that's all done externally, all the, mm -hmm. all the pharmacokinetic studies and in vitro studies, uh, ATMI studies, they're also done externally. So there is a lot of coordination as well going on. And people, certainly in my team, they, they're very quickly getting used to work and 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 uh, get something done with, with, with the help of external partners. That's very yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that's the way the, the world works these days, isn't it? Is you, you sort of focus on what's your real expertise and then there are other people who can do the other yeah. parts of it yeah. know, more effectively more quickly with greater use of resource those sorts of things yeah. but yeah. That, that coordination and we saw this in real highlight during covid right and in the, de the development of vaccines bringing those expertises together yeah to take everything further so it's yeah it's mm -hmm. interesting um i want to go right back to the beginning Roland. so i'm sure we'll come back to sarah events but um you, if I understand correctly, you're a chemist originally. Yes, yes, I um, I studied chemistry and did my PhD at at, at all at the ETH in, in Zurich, mm -hmm. um, which was a great time. You know, it's really my sort of I would say first big step in in my career was to learn how to make uh, complicated molecules mm -hmm. and develop methods to to do that and so on so I had a great time doing that and really really enjoyed that yeah um, and then uh, it you know you have sometimes you have certain plans in in your life <laughs> but it always comes different so <laughs> so that's uh, that, that's funny um, 
so I, I, um, I then after my PhD, I went to to Caltech for a mm -hmm. postdoc, um, and that was really sort of the early beginning of I would say uh, another phase in my career because at Caltech I did a more uh, bioorganic postdoc. Uh, we designed molecules that bind very sequence specifically to DNA. Yes. Um, so that was sort of the first time I really got involved in analyzing crystal structures, trying to understand how molecules interact with each other, um, mm. like small ligands with a larger molecule, biomolecule. In that case, it was DNA. Later on in industry, obviously became proteins. That's what we often do, mostly do in industry. But that sort of was a, a, new, a new fascination, I would say, rather than just making a molecule, but also then trying to understand what function does it have yes. in, in biology and, yeah. and how could it help, essentially. And that was that was around about the late 90s that you headed out there. Um, right, yeah. Been a fascinating time to be in this kind of work in California because there was so much interesting science <laughs> and so many so many cutting-edge companies and research yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. So originally, before I left, I was sure I would immediately go back to Switzerland and work in, in Basel. <laughs> yeah. That uh, was not uncommon. But um, in the late 90s, as you say, the, it, the, the West Coast was very vibrant. Um, I ended up joining a small biotech in San mm -hmm. Francisco. Really enjoyed that. Was working on mainly on antibacterial uh, projects. Um, that was then the first time I also worked on on proteins, not 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 just DNA. Yeah. Um, and um, very very interesting time. I I've learned a lot there. Um, it was uh, it was a shame that when. And when 9-11 happened, uh, <laughs> things got a bit harder. That's, of course, that's yeah. Unusual that, that that does happen. But it made me rethink. And um, partially also for, for private reasons, I basically went back to to, to Los Angeles and I was uh, able to join uh, Amgen, which mm. was uh, uh, in around 2003, um, which was really up and coming. Uh, there was a a big expansion in, in small molecule drug discovery right, um, right. paired up with with the, the, the protein work that Amgen is, was certainly very famous for at the time. Mm. Um, so I had a great time there. Uh, had a, a really nice team, worked uh, in many indications and, and, and across therapeutic areas. So there was a, a big a big learning curve as well there. So absolutely. Yeah, certainly. And, and I'm always interested in kind of the 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 root causes of people's careers or the origins of people's careers i mean for you roland why why science why chemistry why drug development you know why why this career originally for you yeah it's a good question i mean i was always interested in science but i didn't really know what you know mm. it could be physics it could be astronomy chemistry, math, I mean, I, I, biology, I, I was, um, I, I, I couldn't say that I was always sort of drawn to chemistry. I think yeah, I, yeah. I just enjoyed, I guess, understanding how things work, how nature mm -hmm. works, uh, but whether, whether that's like looking at the stars or, <laughs> or, 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 uh, or into a textbook, that's, I, I wasn't really much uh, difference to me. And then uh, it was almost a bit of a coincidence. I mean, we had a, 
had a really good teacher in high school in chemistry and uh, he kind of um yeah made it very made it look very attractive and i i don't regret that honestly i mean i, I felt very very uh comfortable during the studies i really enjoyed the studies and wanted to specialize more and did a yes. phd and that one thing led to another you know so it's not always all planned out it's sometimes no, no. You just do something and then you you take a, a risk as well i mean you know going to the us to completely i mean i arrived in los angeles with a backpack nothing else and you know stayed there for 11 years in total so yeah, yeah. It, uh, sometimes it does come different than you you expect or you plan but that's that's okay i think that's no, absolutely. Uh, probably one message as well you know just stay a bit open-minded and and do what where you feel like what's what's best yeah yeah no certainly and i think um you know serendipity plays a big part in these things right and i think a lot of people yeah. get into science because they find it interesting and then they follow their interests right and they they follow yeah. the things that that intrigue them yeah um i guess this probably this might be a slightly more difficult question so so take a minute if you need to but um you know having having worked in drug discovery now for for several years um it's it can be a pretty tough gig right you know a lot of things fail and a lot of things that you're very excited about don't work out and every now and again there's a little breakthrough but a lot of it is is hard work and you've got to be resilient to to build a career in in drug discovery i think you've you know what what i often come across is is you also have to remain passionate and enthusiastic um and and things like that so what is it that keeps you engaged with it now at this point in your career um you know you were pursuing your interests and i'm sure that's still part of it but what what do you think keeps you well going? i i think it's on on several levels i mean you, you're absolutely right the resilience and the the tolerance of failure or so-called failure is, mm. has to be very high in this business um and because most things that we do ultimately fail at one point or another yes. but I don't necessarily see it as a complete failure because every failure teaches us what not to do. And you can still, sometimes you publish these things and then others don't make the same mistake. And maybe it's not you making the final drug, but maybe it's somebody else who used your data to make the final drug. Mm. And for me, the big picture is in this industry that we want to be successful and we want to help patience and that's really what matters yes. of course you have the ambition that i want to be the one to make the drug or my i want my company to be able yeah. to sell the drug and so on that's that, that's only natural but the bigger picture is absolutely that as a as a community we want to be successful because we mm. want to help patients and i mean that's one aspect the other aspect is is often not always just you're unsuccessful until you sell a drug i mean you know sometimes having a good hypothesis and saying okay i've designed this molecule and suddenly it's 50 fold more potent or so those are big successes that yeah. you can absolutely celebrate and you should celebrate or you 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 you, you, you nominate a, a preclinical candidate or something like this you have a molecule that you know is is absolutely ready to go into the clinic those are massive successes that absolutely you should celebrate and be proud of so yeah 
that it's there are many steps to to a final goal and and each step is 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 rewarding so so i i i totally see that and then there are other rewards as well you know as you as you're longer in the industry and maybe you have a group and you see how how your the people in your group evolve develop become more experienced mm -hmm. and i mean that's big reward as well if you see it's like well you know i i hired this guy and now they do this and that and the other i mean that's yeah, yeah. Uh, or th that's that there are many ways of of having successes in this in this business i would say so mm. it's a fascinating industry but you're right it's um you don't uh, you don't go home every day and say okay i can see I built this chair or something, <laughs> a, a, a physical product, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. Or, or, you know, as you say, though, I suppose it, and I guess this is true for any kind of scientific research-based career, but, but certainly in drug discovery, there's a unique element to this in that even if your program doesn't work, you know, maybe at least you get a paper out of it or you, 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 um, you contribute to the sort of general knowledge pool. And then maybe, a few years away on the other side of the world, someone else sees that and does something with it. And I guess it's always, as you say, looking at that big picture of, okay, what we were trying to do wasn't quite the right thing or it didn't quite work, but maybe this contributes to this thing over here that I don't even know about. And I guess that's that's kind of one of the pretty unique things about yeah, this yeah. kind of work. Absolutely. And I mean, just maybe a word about that is publishing, I think does remain very important. Mm. In, uh, I mean, if people join this industry, I, I would definitely not recommend to stop publishing because mm. that's it's good for for your personal development, but it's also important for the company. It's and as we just said, you know, sometimes others pick something up and drive it forward into a different direction. So um, we can't always publish everything in, no, in sort of of real time sometimes there is a, a delay but um i am definitely an advocate of, of still doing that not just in academia yeah yeah absolutely so so picking back up on your career um so genesoft amgen amgen was a, a relatively small company when you joined but it was on a big growth drive um you then headed out to buy a focus and eventually found your way to um medimmune and and that then became AstraZeneca. So there's a lot of differences in scale in some of these companies. And, and tell us a bit about that. So, you know, your career in small biotech, your career in much, much larger companies. Tell us a bit about that that journey for you. Yeah, so, I mean, Amgen was pretty big when I joined. Already. Okay. Um, and uh, it was definitely way different from a, from a small biotech. And it was a, a very different... Uh, learning curve you know because for, for in a small company sometimes you have to build up things you have many more little functions or so you and you have to be creative with how mm. you get things done in a larger company like Amgen or later on AstraZeneca um, that's that's a bit different you have uh, almost anything you want to do there right. is somebody who did a PhD on that yeah yeah so the bigger challenge is more to find that person but um that's uh that's that's definitely a, a different wealth of of resources that's that's for sure um but sometimes it's harder just because the resources there doesn't mean you can use it mm. so so you uh you know there are other 
obstacles and decision makings, which are perhaps a bit easier in a small organization. So every organization has its unique uh, pluses, I would say, certainly. Yeah. But yeah, for us, I mean, we, you know, for very private reasons, we, we relocated to the UK. I didn't necessarily want to leave Amgen at the time. I, I, I mean, that was really a, a private decision. Um, but when, when we moved here, there were, I had a, was lucky enough to have a, had a few options, but I decided to join a, a emerging CRO by focus at the time. So I felt we did a little bit of outsourcing at Amgen mm -hmm. at the time, but I didn't really think I understand how to use this. So I, I thought this was actually, I consider this a, an important part of, of my career. Joining a CRO was really interesting because I really learned what are sort of the, 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 the pros and cons, what are the pressure points and mm. how can you use a CRO in the best way to, to, to really advance your own research. And there is, there, I think now this is very common. Most organizations outsource yes. uh, some activities at least. Um, and, uh, and it's been a, a very fruitful experience for me and I enjoyed that time certainly yeah so a lot of different projects and organizations had insights into different organizations how they operate um but then yeah I did join the, the neuroscience group at, at AstraZeneca after five years at Biofocus um because I felt that was kind of a, a logical extension you know because mm -hmm. that was sort of a, a semi-virtual organization that that was being built up at AZ in in small and large um, molecules uh, antibodies and small molecules and um, yeah we uh, we did outsource a lot there and basically ran projects from AstraZeneca but but similar to here now we actually we, we did synthesis and and a lot mm. of DNK and testing we did that all external so um, it was good to know how how things work in the outsourcing business. Yeah, and, and what what are the things that you feel you really picked up about that? Because I think you know you're right. It's at a fundamental level, the work is somewhat similar, right? You know, mechanically, there's there's a lot yeah. of similarity. But as you say, the pressure points are different, and the business model is different, and the commercial realities of the business are different. So, what, yeah. what were your observations from that time? At, by a focus that you took with you? Well, I guess there, there are there are many. I mean, as you say, you know, the how how does it how does it work on the business side? I mean, inter purely internally, you don't really need to worry about that too much. Mm. But when you start to negotiate contracts and think about how does that part work, then you do need to worry. Um, you need to also build an element of trust, I would say. You know, it's it's one thing to have somebody in your team that runs an assay, but it's something whole entirely different. If you're if you have to call somebody up in in Shanghai and say, oh, can you run that yeah, this assay? And you, yeah. you trust the results they're they're doing. You've never seen these people, you don't know how they how they work. And and you you kind of have to on, almost virtually try to understand how does it work in that lab and 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 do I do I trust those results? Or I mean, whether it's it's China or, or or local or so, it doesn't matter. If you if you don't 
you typically don't know the people and you you'd still need to interact effectively. So so all of these things I would say I've learned quite a bit. Mm. Um, in that respect, there are probably areas where it's harder to outsource and areas where it's easier. Um, but uh, yeah, that's it's a good experience. Yeah. And, and you talked earlier about um, the leadership element of your career as it's progressed and and kind of seeing people's careers develop and, and taking real satisfaction and pride in that. As you've as you've moved into these leadership roles everybody approaches them differently right and it's got to come from from who you are and and what you're about but what what are your thoughts as as a leader on kind of your approach to it and the things that are important to you? everyone I think has sort of leadership principles right and you know what what would you say about yours I would always like to surround myself with the best possible people sure and the the biggest success is if I mean of course you have you have a core area where you you grow and you feel strong and then you have other areas where maybe you're responsible but you're not so strong yourself mm. and particularly there you need strong people around you but everywhere I think that's to me that's the most important thing to have people who are good scientists and who are team workers team players so that's that's really important and uh, and then it you know once you once you're there then the question as a as a leader is really how can I how can I help these people to really do the job even better, mm. even more efficient? How can I help them grow um, for their own sake, but also for the company's sake? Because if they grow, they produce more. So yeah. but, uh, it, it's a win-win situation. And it's, it's fun if people are in a, such a stimulating environment. I am not a big fan of like, well, I'm the boss. I know it best and others mm-hmm. have to follow hierarchically. So I think everybody have their own core expertise and 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 when it comes about solving a certain problem then it doesn't matter what your title is what matters is the one who has the best idea yeah and I could be the person who's new on the block or I could be somebody who's been in the in the industry for whatever 20 years you know my job is perhaps then to evaluate and in some cases Mm. make a decision but the best ideas of course don't always come from me that's no. true <laughs> uh, i mean uh, that's that's the principle i would say by which i i operate yeah. yeah i suppose particularly in as you mentioned right at the beginning a very multidisciplinary environment then you aren't going to know as much as some of the people in your team right about about yeah. other things because that's why they're there they're the experts yeah and uh, you know good uh, another good thing is you don't need to think that you need to solve all the problems yourself. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, that's why you have a team. And that's even if the team is maybe too stretched or doesn't have the internal expertise to solve things, then then you go external. There are consultants, yeah. there are CROs. And, I mean, I feel like part a part of my job is also to maintain and that network. Where can I tap into if I'm running dry, if I don't know how to solve a problem, who can I ask, you know, mm. who could I pay to give me an advice, you know, consultants or so. I mean, this is all very normal in the industry, but maybe not so normal when you freshly come out of a PhD or a postdoc, you're very used to, I need to do my 
my own yeah. project and and that's that has to go away you know you, you when you're part of that team then you you really have to reach out and uh and and the goal is to get it done as quickly as possible and as with a good quality of course i think there's an interesting bit of uh programming that needs to be done there right over the first few years of someone's career that you sort of go through school and your yeah. success is based on knowing the answer um, yeah and and some people do pick it up quickly and others yeah yeah it takes a bit of time yeah yeah, yeah. no it's interesting we could get into a whole debate about that so we'll, we'll... <laughs> <laughs> um so i guess roland I'm, I'm really interested you've probably touched on some of these as we've talked um but thinking about your career and the sort of transitions in your career and and we've talked about some of the things that you've learned um if you were talking to someone who was perhaps early in their career or perhaps you know perhaps someone who just finished their phd or was in their first role in industry or or was earlier on or, or maybe if you were reflecting back on your time then um what what do you think are the key things you you've learned that you'd advise them to think about and the the key pieces of advice you'd give to someone earlier on I would say the first the first few years I would definitely what's really important is to establish yourself mm. you know and that mean by, by that I mean you, you learn a certain skill set in academia and, and pretty much if you're if I think back for me it was synthetic chemistry and then the next thing is to to really apply that in the context of a of of a of a drug discovery project, um, and then and then you really have to learn. You know, you have to learn about the basics in, in 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 other disciplines like like pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, mm. uh, in vitro pharmacology. There is a lot to learn, and I would say that takes a few years to really get to understand the basics there. And I would take my time to do that. And you know, there are many ways to. To do this, you you have colleagues yeah. that you can learn from. You have courses that you can attend nowadays. I mean, with you know, you can you can find a lot even uh, online. Um, yeah. But yeah. there are good conferences as well, and I would definitely encourage people to to attend that to do that. And then, of course, that apply it. You know, work work hard and make sure that you can publish a bit as well so you have a proven track record that that people can also see and then good things will happen you know that i mean that's very often the case there are a lot of good people are needed in this industry so mm-hmm. i think i would focus on really establish myself as a good scientist and and and, and learn the business from the ground and and then uh, the the next steps they they come they you just have to be open-minded, you know. Yeah. I no. personally, personally, I actually, I did enjoy the geographic changes. I felt mm-hmm. I learned quite a bit working in, or, you know, coming from a, a very uh, Swiss background. Uh, yes. From, and, and then having spent quite a good, a good amount of years in at the West Coast and now in England. I mean, the cultures are different, the way people approach science problems and so on are are different um, but you learn wherever you go you learn a lot mm. no absolutely that, that that change can can certainly be uh, enriching 
yeah and the, how different was california to switzerland do you remember <laughs> uh, very different the weather yeah. was better <laughs> <laughs> um no it was it was uh culturally it's quite it's it's mm. very different i would say for me the major step was if you're i mean i'm talking now I, I can't say how it is in switzerland today but you know back in the late 90s if you if you have an idea in switzerland it's often like that that would be pressure tested from all sides like right. put it before somebody says well yeah it's a good idea Whereas if you go to California, it's probably the other extreme where people first say, oh, it's a great idea. And then they start to think about it. Right, yeah, yeah. you know? So, but I mean, if you, if you think back historically, a lot of big inventions did come from the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's such a coincidence because they, they have this open mind to I mean, no idea can be crazy enough. The crazier, the better. And yeah. and then many things fail, but failure is not necessarily, doesn't lead to a complete downhill spiral. I mean, these people then, what's assumed is that, okay, if somebody failed, then they won't make the same mistake twice. So they, they're, they're more experienced. And um, that's, a, that's a very interesting uh, positive attitude, I would say. So I think Sorry. And I, I was going to say, I think um, sometimes we don't realize how much the culture we grew up in influences how we think about things and how we approach things. And I remember um, reading about a study that, that someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone had done years and years ago, and they'd taken groups of people of all different backgrounds, but grouped by nationality, and they got them to do a project. And I think the project was to build a bridge in a in a battleground or something like that. Mm -hmm. um and they they wanted to see the cultural differences and you know the americans were at one extreme of things where they spent if they had 10 hours they spent 15 minutes planning and then just started doing it and made loads of mistakes but they eventually got there because they kept correcting as they went along and they just you know they they mm -hmm. leapt into action before anyone else um whereas the other extreme was the japanese and the Japanese, <laughs> if they had 10 hours, spent nine and a half hours planning the project and mm. then flawlessly executed it. And they all arrived at the same point and yeah, roughly yeah. at the same time. But they um, they did it in very, very different ways. And I think it's interesting to to kind of you don't notice the things that are, that are really fundamental in your own in your own thinking. Right. And that's where yeah. getting out into the world, I think, probably helps people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And then you have to find your own style. What works best True. for you. True. Um, and thinking, speaking of uh, what works best and, and what's next and your own style and things like that. So tell us about, so Saravans, you've said, are you've got some things in the clinic, you've got some things in late preclinical, there's, there's lots of pipeline there as well. We're heading, as we record this, it'll be released next year, but as we record this, it's towards the end of 2022. Tell us about 2023 at Saravans and where you're headed and what's next. Yeah, so I, I mean, when I joined, even like four years ago or so, we, we really had an early pipeline by and large. Mm. You know, we, we we started projects and now now they go forward and and you know all being good, they they will go into the clinic uh, in next year and the year after, and um, new projects are being generated, but uh, the company as a whole is definitely changing enormously because it's. It's a big deal to have 
uh, clinical stage and preclinical projects. I mean, mm. we had this year, we were fortunate to be able to report that we had a, a positive uh, result in, in phase two, Parkinson's disease with the, the lead project. And that goes forward, that continues to go forward. Um, then we have a phase one project, which looks promising. And, uh, and, and the others, if two more, one or two more projects can, or compounds can go into the clinic, then we really have um, uh, a lot to do there. So we, we have to build up uh, an entire uh, clinical team. So yes. we recently hired a, a chief medical officer and that's, that's absolutely exciting for us. Mm. It's, so that'll, that'll be very, uh, a very different company from the outside, you know, and um, clearly the, it validates the platform. It validates mm -hmm. the whole target identification, the way we do work, because we do it differently. We, you know, we we um we dare to be quite novel here compared yes. to other organizations. So so that needs to be validated. But um, we are we're we're making huge steps towards that, and and that's uh that's definitely exciting. So yeah, it's really encouraging to hear because I think this is a. This is a problem that's been with people for centuries, right? And and it's incredibly complex, and that's meant that there's very little, uh, op there's very little, there are very little options for people when they encounter mm -hmm. these conditions. But you know, clearly, um, approaching it in the novel way that you are is is yielding some results. So yeah, yeah, um, it's really exciting to hear, and and of course, we wish you the best of luck with it, Roman. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. Careers in Discovery is sponsored by Singular, helping you to build a brilliant biotech company. Biotech leaders spend far too much time, money and energy on hiring and people issues. Head to www.singular-biotech.com to learn how you can recruit and engage your team more effectively so you can focus on developing medicines, treating patients and saving lives. Thank you.